him. He's a dear friend of ours, and he's been involved in ministry here for many years, a uh, former elder, and uh, involved in, uh, at, uh, I want to say Highland Manor, not Highland Manor, Homestead, at the Homestead Ministry. If you need a prayer request, he is one of the most faithful brothers in praying for you, and uh, let's welcome Bill, Bill Kristoff to the pulpit this morning. Good morning to everyone. Good to see you here. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we go to his word now. Father, we are grateful to be back together one with another. Thank you so much for giving each other to us and that we can love one another and care about one and pray for one another. And uh, uh, today we uh, want to pray for those that couldn't be here. I, I know many are uh, under the weather. And we pray for them. We know that there are others that uh, are dealing with serious health issues and uh, Perhaps, um, you know, they need healing from, uh, from some procedures, but maybe there's others here that may be awaiting the results of uh, uh, tests to determine what's going on. And, and so those are anxious moments. And so I uh, just pray you'd be close to uh, each and every one that's dealing with these kind of issues. And uh, just ask your blessing now in our time as we look into your word. And we thank you you've given it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, one of the things that pleases me most about our church here is its commitment to outreach. And I did a quick, made a quick list up here of all the various ministries and, and uh, missionaries that we support. On an ongoing basis, we support at least 22. That's the ones I counted. And I may have missed somebody. At least 22. And that's on a monthly, yearly basis. Some of these, some of these ministries we have supported for decades. And that's what, that's an amazing thing. And, uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, Second Corinthians chapter nine says that we will have an abundance for every good deed. And so he has, God has supplied the finances and entrusted them to all of you. And so we in turn then can support. Uh, his work in that way. And so that's a great thing, and, and, uh, and I'm so pleased about that. Uh, but it's not just the money. Um, we invest here as a church emotionally and spiritually and prayerfully and relationally with our missionaries. And that is really important. You, you know, we tend to lose sight of the fact that our missionaries are, are just people. They're just human people that are facing all the same issues and troubles and, and needs that you and I do, but they just may do it in another place, and typically it's in a place that is not their hometown. And we, as a church, have invested in them, and you see that every Sunday morning when we have our missionary moment. And so over the course of a year, you're going to be brought up to speed with what's going on in their lives. And, you know, out of sight, out of mind is true, but insight in mind, in heart, works as well. And so that's a wonderful thing. And so our missionaries are not only grateful for our financial support, but they're grateful for also our emotional support. And so, for example, we had uh, the Barons up here this morning. Well, when Jim and Therese Barons were here last time, I had the opportunity to visit with them. And Jim Barons told me, he said this, 
He said, you know, he says, Parkside is not our sending church. He says, but it feels like our sending church. He says, you know, not take anything away from it, but we go back to our home church. I believe it's in Tennessee. And, you know, we come in there when we're, when we're home from the mission field. And other than a pastor, nobody knows who we are. Nobody talks to us. Nobody, you know, basically we're just like another couple. When they show up here, guess what? It's like a mob <laughs> descending on it. Everybody wants to know about the kids and what's going on. This, and he says it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And so it's important for the financial investment we give, but also how we invest emotionally and uh, relationally with our mission. So when Pastor Woody asked me to speak about outreach and missions, I was double thumbs up. This is a great thing. It's, it's a high priority for Parkside. And that's a good thing because, guess what, it was a high priority for Jesus. In fact, that was his main priority. If we look at the Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it says it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That was job one. You know, he accomplished a lot of other things while he was here, But they were of secondary importance to the redemption of souls. And, you know, you go on to Luke 19.10. This is a a verse that's enshrined in VBS infamy, or not infamy. I want to say, you know, it's there. I think just about every VBS is going to have kids memorize these verses. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And finally, one of the ones that's one of my favorites, it comes out of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, what was the joy set before Jesus? It wasn't that... He gets to go back to heaven and everything is going to be nice and easy again. There would be no reason for him to ever leave. Why would he ever leave? That was not it. The joy set before him was the thousands and millions of souls that he would redeem and would become part of his family. And he would be with them for an eternity. That was the one thing that was lacking in heaven before he came to earth. That is the joy set before him. And that's why it's a priority with Parkside. It should be a priority with us in winning souls. That's what we should mainly be about. So, our text today comes out of the Gospel of John, chapter 4, starting in verse 3. And we're not going to, you know, we're, we're going to read it, but we're not going to go in depth with each and every word and phrase and stuff like that. There's not time for that. We're going to kind of skip over some of the high points that I think that are particularly important for us. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, I think you'll find this passage on page 888. And if you need a Bible, you're free to take one. Just go ahead and take that home with you if you need a Bible. So um, this is John chapter 4 and starting at verse 3. The Bible says this, Jesus left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well's deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I'll not be thirsty and have to come all the way out here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, that is, he who is called Christ, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Skip on down to 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the words of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. 
Well, what does this story have for us? You know, it's an interesting one. It starts off, Jesus and the disciples were in region of Judea, and they're heading up to the region of Galilee, some up north, going from south to north. And the passage opens up, and it says, it's talking about Jesus and the disciples. He said, and he had to pass through Samaria. And that really is not true. In fact, most Jews would avoid Samaria like the plague. Even though it was the, sh- the shortest distance between two points, if you were heading from south to north or north to south, they despised the people of Samaria. And so what the Jews typically would do is if they're going, for example, south to north, they'd cross over the Jordan River, go up north, and when they got past the region of Samaria, would cross over the Jordan River again and, 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 and keep going. And, you know, we, you know, we had to remember that what form of transportation these people had. It was on foot. And, and so, you know, these people already probably had a journey on foot of 75 miles, and they were willing to add 10, 15 miles to it just so they didn't have to put their feet down in Samaritan territory. And so what, you know, what's the story? Why in the world was that the case? Why was there such animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people? Well, you know, a lot of these things is hard to pinpoint an exact date, but really where it's really started to happen was in about 732 B.C., the Assyrian people came and they captured that part of the country. And you know what? They took captive a lot of the inhabitants of that area that we know as Samaria. And they took them and dispersed them in Iraq and Iran and Syria and so on and so forth, all out in that area. Now, they didn't take all the people. There was a lot of people left there in that area that we know as Samaria. And so after a few years, they sent back, the Assyrians sent back a number of the pagan people from that land to repopulate, to take the place of the of the people of the Samaritan region that they had they had deported. Well, you know, in a few years, what happens? Guess what? They start to intermingle and intermarry and so on and so forth. And so you got this amalgamation of pagan people with Jewish people, and it's kind of actually kind of an amazing story because normally when when something like that happens, who wins out? It's the pagan people, right? I mean, that's why, that's why, you know, the Bible forbids mixed marriages. You know, what does light have in common with darkness? Therefore, you know, do not be unequally yoked, believer to unbeliever. There's a reason. Because there's a yes, there's cases when the believer, you know, overcomes the unbeliever, but usually it's the other way around. Usually the pagan drags the believer away rather than takes him closer. Well, anyway, in this case, they kind of, they kind of met there and they established the, the religion, and it was it was kind of a form of Judaism, that, but they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. That's all they accepted of the Old Testament, first five books. The remainder of it, all you know, all the rest of the Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah, the other prophets, and they didn't pay any attention to that. And so they were kind of a you know this kind of a kind of sort of maybe Judaism type thing. At any rate, well, when the temple got constructed again in, in Jerusalem, well, 
they couldn't furnish proof of their genetic purity and ethnical purity. You know, there was no 23andMe. There was no Ancestry.com, you know, where you can get the DNA out here. And yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're 95% pure Hebrew descent. You're in great shape. We'll take you in, this type of thing. You know, most of those people could not prove their ethnic and religious purity. And so they were not allowed to worship in the temple. So what the people of Samaria did is they would go back to their own place and at Mount Gerizim they build their own temple. And so you kind of, you know, this is apartheid kind of, you know. And so, you know, prejudice and hatred and, and so on are, are not a modern invention. It goes way back. And so there's animosity there. And it, was, it wasn't helped for the fact that the Samaritan people kind of acted like almost like a sanctuary state, so to speak. So, you know, uh, people that were fleeing from the Jerusalem uh, Judean area, kind of criminal type element, a lot of times the people in Samaria would take them in and kind of give them sanctuary. And then it really got bad in about 200 B.C. The, the Jewish main population came up and destroyed the Samaritan temple in, at Mount Gerizim. So there was like this, and they did not like one another, and they basically, they didn't want to have much to do with one another. And so the text says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, probably his disciples would have said, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? What are you walking through here? You shouldn't be doing But Jesus would hear nothing of that. Jesus would hear nothing of that. He had to go through Samaria because he had an appointment with this woman at the well. And so he comes, and it's, it's the sixth hour, which would be about our noontime. And so they've been walking quite a while, and he's tired. It's hot and dusty and everything. So he stays at the, Jesus stays at the well, and he sends his disciples into town to get lunch, send them over to Subway to get a couple of Rubens and stuff like that, and, and, and bring it back, you know. And so he... Jesus is standing there. He's resting, just hanging out at the well. And here comes a Samaritan woman. And she comes up and he says, give me a drink. And she's amazed. Why in the world is this guy asking me for a drink? He's a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. What's going on here? This is is not normal. And, And so, you know, and... And he says, woman, if you knew who it was that was asking you for dinner, you'd ask me, and I would give you living water. And she says, sir, how in the world can you do that? You don't even have anything to, to draw water out of the well, and it's deep, and so on and so forth. And, you know, he says, you know, the water that you will drink from this well, you will thirst again. But the water I will give you, you will never thirst. And she's not quite... Connecting the dots just yet. But she says, sir, give me this water so I'm never going to have to come back here and drink again. And he says, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right. You have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the man that you are with right now is not your husband. You are living with this guy. Go get your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. He says, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That is an amazing thing. You know, 
It doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? You know, the, the, the main line Jewish people, by and large, didn't want to hear that message. And they didn't accept it. But here this, here's this, the most unlikely person you can imagine. This Samaritan woman who has a big history, and Jesus declares to her that he is the Messiah. It's an amazing thing. So what does she do? She heads back to town immediately. She leaves the water pot right there. You know, that was the whole reason she came in the first place was to to draw some water out. She leaves the water pot right there, goes back into town and says, Come see someone who has told me everything I have done. And, you know, it's obviously her voice and her body language had to say, you know, this woman has really seen somebody. This is a, so. I mean, it's not just a hundred yards. You're going to travel out of town to go to this well. You know, it's quite a ways, perhaps a couple miles. And so, all these people come out from town to see this Jesus here. In the meantime, his disciples, well, they get back and they say, "Here, you know, it's time to eat." And he says, "Oh, I have food that you don't know about." And so they say, "Well." You know, who gave who gave him some food here, you know, and did you get something to eat? And he said, My food is to do the will of my father in heaven. And and so what Jesus was saying to him is this is, is that this is what satisfied him. See, this Samaritan woman came to faith in him as the Messiah. And that brought him one soul closer to the joy set before him. And, you know, we can, our stomachs can be full and yet we not be content. And our stomachs can be empty and yet we can be completely satisfied. And Jesus was satisfied from the elation, I guess you'd say, of the fact that there had been one soul added to the kingdom. That was an amazing thing. And so people from the city come on out. They're visiting with Jesus. And, and so they talk with him. And, you know, we, we don't have the whole conversation recorded for us. We don't have everything. We know that there was much more said than what we have written down here. But at any rate, they, they invite him to stay for a couple days. And so they do stay a couple of days, and there's all this interaction. We can imagine the conversations that went on with all these people over the course of a couple of days. You know, that, it had been nice to have been there. It had been nice that somebody recorded all that stuff to us. But then, after that, he's going to leave. And what is the response of the people from the Samaritan village? The most unlikely people you're going to imagine that would actually receive Jesus as Messiah. And they said, well, now it's not only because of what the woman has said, but we have heard it for ourselves. And we know that this one is the Savior of the world. What a bold proclamation. What an amazing thing. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and these people believed it, and they said, we have come to know that this one is the Savior of the world. Quite an amazing, quite an amazing interchange 
with these people. So, how does that apply to, to what we're about here? You know, it's, it's incredible and a wonderful thing that God has laid it upon the hearts of the leadership of this church over the decades to commit to outreach like they have. And, it, you know, it's carried through regardless of who those people were that were in positions of leadership. And that's a great thing. And we, you know, 22 missionaries? Are you kidding me? That's incredible. I mean, those of you who are in the military, I think you go to, you've been in a number of different churches. You know, you've been various places you've been. Is this typical of churches to make this kind of commitment to missionaries? I don't think so. Unfortunately, it should be. It should be the, the, you know, the rule rather than the exception. But, you know, it's incredible. I'm glad it's not to, not to pat ourselves on the back. I'm glad that God has laid in our hearts that we should do this. And that's a wonderful thing. However, there's a caveat. There's one danger in that. And that is, the danger is, is that we look at that and say, you know what? Mission accomplished. We're in good shape here. You know, we've got, look at, look who we've got in Turkey. We've got people in China. We've got, you know, we've got, uh, we've got missions that, singular missions going to Africa. We've got people in Peru. Hey, everything's going good. I, you know, we're covered. Well, it's, it, you know, that base is covered and everything is good. We tend to can get a mindset that missions are somewhere out there. Maybe it's New Jersey. You know, maybe it's in India for the Malachar. Somewhere out there, and we can lose sight of the mission field that is right in front of our face. And, and so the Bible in no place that I'm aware of makes any kind of statement that says is that, you know, a commitment to missions and evangelism and outreach is a spectator sport. And so we can sit back and look. I mean, it is wonderful that we help. That is great. That's wonderful. But that doesn't mean that all of a sudden obliviates the need for us to be actively engaged. And so we have a mission field right in front of our face. And I'm going to say that there would be, if, if I could ask for a show of hands here as to how many people do not have how many people do not have a member of their family that is lost? Hands go up. There are no hands up. Because all of us have somebody. How many of us have people that we work with that are, do not have people who we work with that are lost? Yeah, everybody. If you're a student, how many of your fellow classmates do you have that are lost? Many. And so it goes. People have been put in our sphere of influence for a reason, and they are our mission field. And we can lose sight of that fact if we just focus as missions being something out there. And so what prevents us, if you will, what prevents us of being more actively involved in that mission field that's in our own backyard? Well... I've kind of come up with a number of different things here. 
sadly, I think one of the things that that we think is is that there's a number of people that a either are unreachable or even worse, undeserving. You know, there are people in our lives that are real problem children, right? And they're there, and it's like, you know, we can have this attitude, I'm not sure they deserve it, you know? And we can, we can think that, you know what, you know, if they're not in heaven, maybe that's not such a bad thing. And, you know, that's terrible. That's not, that's not the attitude we ought to have. That's not the attitude Jesus had. You know, he, he went to, deliberately went to the Samaritan people. That was no accident. You know, it was no accident in, in Luke, in the parable of the good Samaritan. That was no accident. You know, that was a parable. That was not an actual historical event, the good Samaritan. This, the woman at the well is a historical event. The the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan was just that. That was a story. And to use the the phrase Good Samaritan, it would have rubbed the average Jew. I'm telling you, it would have rubbed them really wrong. Because in their mind, for a lot of these a lot of these Jews, particularly if you were higher up in the echelon of the religion, the only Good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. And to make the, make a Samaritan the hero of a story at the expense of the, the priest and the Levite? What? Jesus didn't exclude those people from Samaria. He was hoping to add, this was the joy set before him. This was, you know, in John earlier, in John 3, where, you know, the famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world meant everybody, including Samaritans, including your next-door neighbor that's giving you grief, all these people, you know. And so we can be reluctant to want to even share our faith with people that we feel either either other. I mean, some of these people are way out there, and we think there's no way God could save that person. And, you know, what more unlikely candidate to receive Jesus, acknowledge him as Messiah, as when this Samaritan woman. Five husbands. One that she's with, she's not even married to right now. Well, we don't know, I have no proof, can't say, but I'm pretty comfortable in telling you that those five husbands, they did not pass away from natural causes. Some of those, maybe all of them, were no longer her husband because of divorce. And you know what? There's a reason she comes to gather water in the middle of the day. When do they normally gather the water, draw the water? Evening. Why in the world is she coming in the middle of the day? Because she knew she'd be the only one there. And to go and gather and draw water in the evening would mean that she would be with the rest of the women of the of that town and they didn't have good things to say about her, I'm pretty sure. They bu- would bully her and call her a homewrecker and every other sort of thing you can imagine. And they'd be right. And here she is living in, a, in an adulterous relationship with the man she's in, with now. Is that an obvious candidate to receive 
the Messiah? Not likely. Jesus did. And so we can, we can be guilty of that. We can say, man, this, this person is so far out, or worse yet, you know, we're not so sure we even want him in, you know, like that. That, was, that mindset has to change. People object, make the objection to sharing their faith, I believe, because they will say, you know, I, I just don't know enough. I don't know enough. Suppose somebody asks me a question I don't have an answer for. And I'll say, yeah, they will. And you're right, you don't know enough. So what's your point? If we wait until we know enough, we will never share our faith. You know, it's just like, I'd say, okay, if you would say, well, I just don't know enough, I need to know a little bit more. And I'll say, okay, when? Tell me when. You know, well, you know, they're having a shepherd's conference going on here in a few weeks, and there's some great speakers down there. You know, I'm going to go down there and listen, and then I'm going to be ready. Okay, fine. Let's put it on the calendar and get it done. Well, there's a woman of faith conference in Sacramento in April. I'm sure, you know, we're going to have Beth Moore, and we're going to have a lot of other people there, and after I'm there, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be good to go. I say, okay, I'll put it on the calendar. fact is we just keep kicking the can down the road. When that happens, we're no, we're no closer. We're still not going to be ready if that's what we think we have to be. We don't know enough. You're right. We don't know enough. Did this Samaritan woman know enough? She shared what she knew. She knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And here's an interesting, interesting thing, how she approached the people in the village. She comes back to him after she... After she has this conversation with Jesus, it says, Come see this one that told me everything about myself. Okay, that's fine. Well, then she puts it this way. She does not say, He's the Messiah. She does not say that. She says, puts it in the form of a question. Is this the Messiah? You see, another reason why people won't, are reluctant to share their faith is they say, you know, you don't understand. I've got a history. You know, we all have history. Every one of us here has a history. Now, for those that came to faith in Christ when they were little ones, that is a wonderful thing. You don't have much history. You know, you can talk about disobedience when you're in kindergarten and stuff like that. There's not really not, there's not any great news there. But if you're like me, and many of you are, that, you know what, you came to faith in Christ when you were well, uh, well into adulthood. There's lots to share. There's, there's a story. And my story, I'm not particularly interested in any of you knowing anything about. There might be some of you here that actually knew me before I was a believer, and you're look, uh, sitting there right now, and you're going, Him? What are you talking about? Everybody has a history. And to use that for an excuse is no excuse. And the Samaritan woman knew that she had a history. And she knew that the best way to try to approach this is put... Actually, I mean, she was saying that Jesus was the Messiah, but she put it in the form of a question. 
and let them figure it out and let's see what she said was true. Did she know enough? No, she did not know enough. Were there questions that people could ask her that she couldn't answer? Absolutely. You know, so that that is that's a barrier because we think we don't know enough. And it's just not true. It's just not true that you don't know enough. You know way more than you think you know. You know, many many of us have been in this church for many years, and this church has been faithful to proclaim the Bible week in, week out. And, you know, you think you don't know enough? You know way more than you think you know. No excuse. Some people will, will, will use, here's this excuse they will use to not to say something. They will say, well, I subscribe to this lifestyle evangelism. And it goes something like, let my, let my life speak for itself, right? That sounds, sounds kind of good, doesn't it? You know, that sounds kind of good. They, they, they will say the statement that's accredited to St. Francis of Assisi, and we don't even know if he actually said that. There's some question if he ever did. But you've all heard this. It says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Right? We've all heard that, or some variant of that. And that is a, like, wait a minute. Sounds good on the surface. How does that work? You mean to tell me... That, you know, okay, uh, you know, people would say, well, Bill's a pretty stand-up kind of guy, pays his bills on time, loves his wife, got good kids, things like this, and so on and so forth. And he claims to be a Christian, so guess what? You know, that'll work for me. I can be truthful and pay my bills and, and love my wife and everything like that. That must be all I need to do. Is that the message of the gospel? Not even close. In fact, it is a message of damnation. In Galatians chapter 1, Apostle Paul talks about this, them abandoning the true gospel message for a false gospel. Of course, that false gospel is, is, is you know, we think that we can do enough. And being a, you know, a great citizen and a stand-up parent and everything like that, it's going to be, no, that is not the message. And how do we think that somehow that message is going to transfer from us to them just by observing our life? How does that work? Is it going to happen by osmosis? Just kind of travel through the cells, kind of like Star Trek in the transporter room? You know, it's not going to work. It's an impossibility. In fact, it'll do worse than nothing because it'll give a false sense of security for people who think, hey, if I just get my life in a little better position, I'm going to be okay. And so we have to say something. You know, the Bible tells us, Romans chapter 10, that's kind of a familiar verse to many of us, Romans 10, uh, starting at verse 13, he says, whoever call in the name of the Lord will be saved. And it goes on, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And just as it risen, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Yeah, we got to say something. we got to say something. And some may say, well, what about First Peter chapter 3, verse 
15. And it says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make an, a defense of anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That's a great verse. I love that verse. The problem is, if I ask for a show of hands as to how many of us have ever had someone ask us that question, I'm afraid I'm not going to see many. My memory is poor, but I can tell you, if it's ever happened, it was a long time ago. If we wait for people to ask us, it's not going to happen. We have to speak out. We have to speak out. Do we, you know, do we care? You know, do we care enough? Is it a problem? We just don't care enough. You know, I can personally tell you that it's a situation where it's like, okay, I'm kind of embarrassed to say something, you know, but which is worse? And I can tell you this from personal experience because I had someone that I should have said something to. And, you know, and you feel that inside, you know, because you get that prompting to say something and you don't do it. I think most of you probably know what I'm talking about. And the thing about it was, is then I didn't have a chance anymore because he was gone. And so what is worse, to feel some discomfort or to stand before God? And, and, and then he asked, Bill, why didn't you say something? I was prompting you. You felt it. Why didn't you say anything? That's going to be an embarrassing moment. That's going to be. That's going to be. I don't want to. I don't want to repeat that. And I think all of us know what I'm talking about, or most of us do for sure. Do we care enough to ask? And so, you know, I, I want to propose something concrete for you to do if you're willing to do it. If you really, if you really prioritize. You know, evangelism and outreach. If you prioritize that, you want or want to prioritize that on a personal basis, then I have something concrete that you can do. And it's nothing, you know, nothing, you know, strange or anything like that. Very easy, really, in one way to do. And that is, first of all, make a commitment to pray on a daily basis for those that you know. Just make yourself a list of five or ten people that you know, that you deal with, co-workers, members of your family, people from school, whatever it may be, people, whatever it may be, people that you know that are lost and need to know Jesus. And commit to pray for them. You know, be careful. Are you sincere? Because guess what? God answers prayer. And you better be prepared to have that prayer answered. And then the next thing, the next thing is this, commit to pray, but then to understand this. You know, we talked about not knowing enough. We're in good company to say if you don't think you know enough. Apostle Paul talked about this in Colossians chapter 4. He says, says, be praying for at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word. That's you praying for all those people that you know. Commit to do that, right? Open up to us a door for the word so we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for that which I have also been imprisoned. 
And then he says, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. You should take comfort, and I should take comfort in knowing the Apostle Paul wrote how many books of the New Testament. He didn't think he knew enough either. He didn't think he knew enough either. And so he said, I want people to be praying for me. That, you know, when that opportunity comes, when that person, that brother or sister of yours or a nephew or a niece or a co-worker or somebody from school, that door opens up that she will know what to say. And, I mean, this is not rocket science. I think God is faithful. I mean, ask yourself this question. Many of us in here are parents, right? And so if your child came to you and says, gee, Dad, I'd love to help you. What can I do to help? Well, first of all, I'd say, okay, wait a minute. Where's my wallet? I, got, I think something might be going on here. You know, I mean, you know, we, we, you know, these are not, that doesn't happen real normally, right, if you've got kids. But if it does, and you'd say, yeah, sure, come on. You know, well, here's, something, here's some things you can do. Here's how you can help me out. Do you think God, if you ask him to open up a door for the word and then to help you make it clear in the way you ought to speak, that he will do that? I think so. I think that's a high percentage prayer right there. But you, I mean, again, are, is this, is it really a priority for you personally? Is that something that's important to you? And if it is, these, this is a way you can start. This is a way you can go. And so I just want to, I want to encourage you that, you know, um, It was the joy set before Jesus. That was the joy set before Jesus. That he would, he would see these thousands upon thousands of souls being redeemed by what he did on Calvary's cross. And you know, the thing about it was, is, is that you know, we have no idea what those numbers look like. But Jesus did this willingly. He said, forget about the, forget about the shame. Forget about all that stuff. I gladly do it. I gladly do it. And so, anyway, Woody's gonna, Woody's gonna lead us in communion. And so, I just, uh, I just pray that, uh, you know, as we honor in communion, we remember what Jesus did, made that possible. So that, so souls can be redeemed. So that that Samaritan woman could have a hope for heaven. And all those Samaritan people in that village says, we have come to know that this is the Savior of the world. Amazing thing. And that's the joy set before him. And so I pray pray for us as, as what he leads us in communion. We remember that. So, anyway, thank you. Bill, thank you very much. A lot for us to chew on there and think about. But let's not just leave it at thinking about it. The church across America 
has developed into uh, what appears to be a knowledge uh, storehouse. We, we like our really good sermons and we like our really good Christian books and really good conferences and all that and we take it in and we take it in and you would think that we would have a great outreach because of all the input, all the knowledge that we have at our fingertips. And yet, it, it's, it seems like it just keeps coming back to, um, fill up my, my head, dear Lord, fill up my head and my heart, and I'll feel good. And so, um, I have to be challenged in this very way, um, as Bill brought some of these points out in the, in the Word here this morning. Uh, we have to be challenged in this way. What's right in front of us on a daily basis? What's right in front of us? And as we come to communion, again, we know, most all of us here, we know this is not about a, a morning little appetizer. <laughs> this is about Jesus and His sacrificial death on your behalf. This is about Jesus and His substitutionary death in your place. This is about Jesus who became the propitiation for our sin, meaning He took on the wrath of God. It, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus at the cross in your stead. Okay? So we come, and a lot of times I'm, I, I'm way too casual in it. And I'm not saying I've got to strike uh, perfection in receiving the elements, but I need to be going in the right direction in my life. And as we come to communion now, we need to spend time saying, Lord, thank you for your death. Thank you for uh, what you went through for me to make me a child of God. If you're not a child of God, these elements are not for you. It's just for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And so believers need to come confessing their sin. And here's the typical approach that Woody has a lot of times. Well, I've not murdered anyone. I've not stolen from anyone. I've not really cheated or said anything mean-spirited to anyone. So I'm good. And I neglect or we neglect Things like confessing our self-reliance, our self-dependency, our self-sufficiency. We like to be in control, don't we? <laughs> we like those things. And yet, we neglect those things when we come to communion because we think, you know, I, I haven't done anything really criminal. And yet we have. And it's really at this and Bill touched on it and implied it in some ways here in the message. It's about our self-righteousness. We, we don't spend, we, we don't confess our self-righteousness to God. And our, our self-righteousness is called what in the Bible? Filthy rags. So, thank God for His gift of salvation in Jesus. Thank God for the perfect righteousness of Jesus on your behalf. It's put to your account through faith in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? 
And so let's not take that for granted. And let's go beneath the surface of what our society says is sin and wrongdoing. And let's go beneath the surface and confess those things to God. Okay? Here's what 1 Corinthians 11 tells us as we take time to partake of the elements. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, meaning some die. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so it behooves each one of us who are going to partake to examine our hearts right now, starting right now. If you haven't already, let's start right now and say, Lord, shine your light into my heart here and help me to bring forth this and confess this to you. Um, Proverbs 28 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And we know these things. Let's do it then, okay? So um, I'd like the men who are serving to come at this time. Let's pray together. First of all, dear God, we want to humble ourselves before you and recognize that there's nothing that we could do ever to make things right with you in our own ability, in our own efforts. And it all rests on what Jesus accomplished for us, a, a perfect life and a perfect sacrifice and there's no need for any more uh, to be added to it because it's a finished perfect work and we thank you for the righteousness of Christ which is perfect and so Lord uh, we ask that you would continue to lead us and guide us in your way in your truth to love you to serve you to speak for you to others that we know. Help us in this way, dear Lord, uh, not, to, uh, not to shy away from it, but to trust You. And Lord, uh, we do, we need to confess uh, some of these, well, all of these sins that so easily cause us to stumble and the sins that 
we think that aren't as bad, we want to confess them to you, Lord. We, we want to confess the, the bitterness that we might hold or the anger that we might hold towards others. We, we want to confess, Lord, this issue of uh, self-reliance and our self-dependence. Lord, uh, we think we, we ought to have control of the issue and, and yet we fail to trust in you to lead us and guide us. So help us in this way, Lord. Lord, we we pray that as we partake now that we would lift up You and thank You. But then, Lord, um, to carry on through this day and this week in in similar spirit. Thank You for the the body of Jesus given over to, uh, to death on the cross. Thank You, Lord, as we partake now. In Jesus' name, amen. We hold this symbol in our hands of what Jesus uh, did for us, his bodily death on the cross. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Heavenly Father, we know that to avert your judgment sacrifice needed to be made. And it couldn't just be any old thing for a sacrifice. There had to be a blood sacrifice. And we thank you that the Old Testament gives us pictures of it, but in Jesus we have the fulfillment of it. A perfect blood sacrifice on the cross. Jesus shedding His blood so that we might be redeemed. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for redeeming Your children. Help us as we partake now. In Jesus' name. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you, men. You may uh, be seated. And uh, really glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, as we get ready to close in prayer, we want to just 
thank you again. Um, as Bill had mentioned in the message, um, your faithful giving allows us to support missionaries around the world. But let's not just leave it at your faithful giving. Let's redirect it to God and His work. God's good work is, is uh, what we want to boast in. God's good grace. That's what we must boast in. It's not because we've got a really cool team of pastors or Sunday school teachers or connect group leaders. No. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. Always. Always. To God be the glory. Okay? We want to encourage you about helping us with the benevolence again. Uh, this, this is the beginning of the month and we can be of help to people in our congregation and people in our community by your giving. Uh, there's a, a box in between the doors right here or a love offering plate in the foyer for uh, the purpose of benevolence here in our church and in our community. So uh, you can give in that way if you'd like. Um, and I think that takes care of our time. Uh, just please remember, pray for the safety of our uh, Peru team coming back home on Tuesday. And uh, we're excited for them. If you haven't seen the pictures on Facebook, you got to check it out. <laughs> it's really it's very special. And may we be the Fallon team today, this week. We don't have to go to Peru. Let's us be the team in Fallon this week, okay? Let's stand together for our closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our time. Thank you for this passage that we've looked at this morning. Thank you for Bill and his uh, preparation and delivery of it. And Lord, may we take it now and... uh, uh, Put steps to it. Take action with it. Lord, you have blessed us beyond measure. We have so many blessings. So we again want to confess to you um, those times and moments where we show discontent, where we show complaint or discouragement. Lord, we want to keep our eyes on Jesus and give you thanks and praise because that's the good and right thing to do. Having the sacrifice of praise to God, it's the, it's the fruit of lips that gives thanks to your name. So help us with that today and through this week. Lord, thank you for each person here. Uh, thank you for the good work that you will accomplish. Help each person here help me and each person here to um, have that heart of humility and surrender to you Lord we ask that you would richly bless and, and protect our team coming home from Peru thank you for them and the work that you've done in them and through them and now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you 
in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen. We will have someone up front here if you uh, so desire to pray with someone. Uh, You can come up front and pray with the couple up here. Thank you again for coming. God bless you.